receptive to understand what you're saying today. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Language is a gift from God. The fact that we can communicate with one another, the fact that we can convey complex things, not with showing them, but by describing them or just naming them, that's the behavior that really separates us from the beasts and the animals. It's not the use of tools like we used to think. You can go online and find any amount of footage of monkeys using simple tools. They'll find some little capuchin creature who has a particularly hard jungle nut, and he'll put it on a rock, he'll pick up another rock, and he'll start wailing away at that rock until he breaks through. It's not even the ability to feel some emotions. Some monkeys seem genuinely happy when they're at play. They seem genuinely distressed when they're alone. They seem generally, generally and genuinely grieved when they lose one from their little monkey pack. No, the behavior that divides us humans from the animals is the fact that that nutcracking monkey cannot, after a few failed swings, stop and realizing that his monkey bride is near enough to have witnessed his failure, go, Something wrong with the rock. <laughs> Gonna need a new rock. And she, having watched him fail and only wanting to help, she cannot go, well, Stephen, maybe if you just turned it around and held it the other way. And he cannot immediately spin around being very defensive of his failures and say, I know how to hold a rock, Cheryl. <laughs> this is not the first nut I have cracked. The rock is broken. Thank you, Cheryl. Yes, through this fantastic gift of language, while the beasts of the field are fighting over food and territory, mankind alone is equipped to engage in the pettiest disputes of all of creation. There is, of course, more, and the good is far better than the bad is bad. Our language allows us to communicate, to meet, to cooperate, to plan. We can build skyscrapers to precision measurements. Anyone in this room can, given a small amount of preparation time dial a number and have a pizza delivered to their home, or flowers delivered to a friend or loved one on the other side of the world. It's so marvelous a gift that sometimes we forget its limitations. Sometimes we forget that we can be misunderstood, that some things cannot be spoken, or speaking them isn't enough. Consider the word love. We have so many different uses for this word that it's a marvel that we can use it to communicate at all. Examples. I love my family. I love footy. I love your hair. I love this song. I love it when a plan comes together. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I love cats. I love you. I love Jesus. But even narrower than that, we can say the same words to the same person, meaning the same thing and communicate more or less each time. A man will typically tell a woman that he loves her a number of times before they get married. The first time they say it, there's kind of an initial scandalous thrill, like the first cigarette in a smoker's life, and very soon, like the, person expect, like the cigarette wielder, the person expecting the I love you becomes accustomed to it and becomes extremely discouraged and distressed without it. But that's where the comparison ends. 
Because when this young man in this example works up the nerve in the flashing lights of a New Year's Eve firework display to tell this woman that he loves her and wants to be her husband, this I love you, which doesn't actually tell her anything more than she already knows, because she probably saw it coming, this I love you means a great deal more. Maybe enough to move them both to tears. They are grappling with things too big to fit into language here. And 20 years on from that day, when her response to I love you has changed from to you'd better, <laughs> it will mean even more. For the Apostle Paul, a man who has put a lot of lines in the Bible, language seems to draw thin and become insufficient for him at this point in Scripture. He has so much to say but struggles to convey it. He starts off in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then stops, and then breaks off in mid-thought and repeats what he told us in the chapter before this one, about how Christ made it possible for all people to come into one family, that Jews and Gentiles have a common father God. There's an excited, breathless quality to the way that he pulls up so abruptly and then redirects his thought midstream. He's so much to tell, but hasn't done justice to what he said before, so he stops, leaves the start of that sentence in verse 1, dangling without a verb to complete it. Sentence without a verb. All the teachers in the room feel their hands twitching towards a phantom red biro in their pockets. <laughs> Paul, a very promising first draft. Your grammar still needs work. See me after class. A minus. But where Paul's hesitation has stopped him, where we have a technical mistake in the rules of language, he has communicated through it a great deal indeed, perhaps more than the complete sentence might have. He is welling up with feeling that cannot be comfortably compacted into language. He's talking about the big stuff, about God's plan, God's grace, God's love, about rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. He is praying for all of God's holy people, Jews and Gentiles, throughout all generations, up to and including you. And his prayer is that all God's holy people might be able to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And there is a real danger here of reading past this too quickly and taking only Paul's language and not what he is trying to communicate. We cannot let these words love, glory, grace, lose their power. They are not just Christian fluff. Paul is desperate to say that they mean something, and something he can't quite put into words, something that God needs to empower his people to understand, because they are as incapable of understanding them as Paul is of describing them. That is the chapter we are looking at today, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul packs it full of meaning like his one and only piece of carry-on luggage on a 12-hour flight. So puffed up with useful, important things that the zipper's grown and it barely fits in the overhead compartment. But it's the best he can do. All he has is one bag. All he has is human language. And everything else outside of that language is left up to the grace of God. He breaks off from that first sentence to talk about what he calls the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. What is he talking about? He's talking about what he has written briefly in chapter 2. 
Josh spoke on this last week. The one church fused together out of many peoples. This idea does not always cause joy. Our church supports a number of missionaries scattered throughout the world. And the worldwide church has thousands of these operations in place. Going to the poorest places, the most dangerous places, going into the most isolated places in the world. They go there to provide medicine and teach English. But beyond all those things, and more important than them, they go to teach the gospel. The gospel which God has established before the creation of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again to take away their sins and open the way to God. And that is for, and always was intended for, all people everywhere. But I've spoken to some friends of mine who are less keen on that idea, some of them Christians, some not. I've talked about missionaries doing charitable work as they spread the gospel, and the response is this cringing, uncomfortable half-approval. Gosh, I love the ideas that those folks are providing mosquito nets and food and earthquake relief, but why do they have to bring religion into it? Why do they have to bring an outside religion in? Can't they just deliver the vaccines and the canned food and not talk about Jesus? I understand that reaction, and the people who have it they mean well, but they're really missing the point. It's not as though they hate Jesus or even religion. They'd have the same reaction if people were going out into the world and teaching tribesmen how to negotiate the stock market or how to build cars. It's not that it's bad, it's just from the outside. Christianity is a Western sort of thing. It just wrecks the natural state of people outside the West. It's the same reaction folks have to the idea of building a road through a lovely piece of forested area and disturbing the foraging habits of some specific species of possum. Don't build there, you'll wreck his natural habitat. But Christianity is not a Western thing. If anything, it's an Eastern thing. It doesn't come from Australia or America or England. It comes from Israel. And in Paul's time, writing this letter, people had fairly similar thoughts. The Jews had their own God, the God of Israel, and that was fine. And the Romans had their own gods. But the Jews were not in the habit of trying to convince the Romans to become Jews by sending rabbis out into Rome to convince them. And the Romans, well, they'd come in and wreck up your country and they'd build temples to Jupiter and Diana for their own purposes. But they'd never sponsor a Roman missionary to go next door into Gaul or Carthage and teach Latin and spread the good word of Roman religion. They would have thought someone was an idiot or a troublemaker for trying. Why would you try and bring a Jewish God to someone who isn't Jewish? Why would you try and bring a Roman God to someone who isn't Roman? But that's exactly what the gospel called Paul to do. Verses 8 and 9. Although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. He is not just the God of Israel who belongs to Israel. Israel belongs to him and he created all things. So all things belong to him. Jupiter and Diana were not really the gods of Rome. The God of Rome is the God of Israel is the God of America, is the God of the Congo, is the God of Haiti, is the God of China, is the God of Japan, is the God of Russia, is the God of Indonesia, is the God of Iran, is the God of Colombia, is the God of Australia, is the God of the universe. 
And if there are people in such places who don't know him, we should probably send someone to tell them. That was the mystery that was revealed. That this worldwide notion that different gods have different little slices of the world devoted to them and that's how it ought to be was a complete lie, a fabrication. The gospel is not a Western religion being fed into other countries. It's not even a Jewish idea. It's an invitation from God to come in from the cold, out from isolated pockets of humanity, into the fellowship of God's family. And that's our privilege to tell the world about. This is Paul's administration of God's grace. And it is the reason he writes this letter from a Roman jail. And he was in jail for exactly that, for preaching the gospel. But he's not in the least upset about his present incarceration and goes on to speak interesting words in verses 10 through 12. His intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. God's plan, Paul says, is that through what he is doing with the church, he will show his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. God is teaching the angels a lesson by what he is doing with the church on earth. Elsewhere in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, the apostle Peter writes something similar. He's talking about the prophets of old who were striving to understand God's plans and purposes. And Peter writes that even the angels long to look into such things. Well, angels, good angels, fallen wicked angels. It stands to reason that God is showing them both his plan as it unfolds, as surely as he is showing us. What an amazing notion. We often give angels, particularly Satan and his angels, too much credit when we talk about them. But it seems they honestly had no idea what was going on until it was done and the game was over and they lost. And not just that they lost, but they could never really have possibly won. Like a stadium full of devilish spectators watching the last few minutes of some championship grand final. And for what seemed like thousands of years, the ball's gone back and forth and the devil's team can't quite shut God's team down because they have no idea what strategy they are trying to employ. And when all the devil's temptations for Jesus failed to slip him up, it must have seemed to the devil fans that it was over far too early. And then Jesus at the Last Supper looks at Judas, Judas whom the devil was working in, and told him to go and do what you have to do. And it must have looked like a fumble. It must have looked like the Son of God had cracked under the pressure and given up. And it was a short run from there to Jesus' arrest, to Calvary, to the death of Christ. The great light that came into the world was dead. Whatever God's plan to save the Jews was must have failed. The creator overestimated his own cunning and the devil had snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. And then Jesus rises from the dead and paid the penalties for the sins of the world, not just the Jews. And the crowd of fallen angels raced through the roller coaster of emotions. The two minutes to go amazing play that puts them back in the lead, yes. The one minute to go sudden reversal that puts them back in the behind, no. The final buzzer that tells them the game is over, they have lost. And all that's left to do is take a bus ride home to the sound of the other team's fans singing their songs. And that is hell. 
There you go. <laughs> so they do what the very worst kind of sporting fans would do. They riot out of the stadium, start flipping over cars and setting things on fire. They've already lost and there's nothing left to lose. Now this tale of sporting madness is an analogy, but it's not a metaphor. Angels are not just a poetic way of talking about life's hardships. There's a genuine spiritual war happening in the heavenly realms. And the reason is the church, this church, that was, as Paul said in this chapter, God's plan all along. And Paul asks in verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the thing that Paul interrupted himself to restate. To pack all his explanation and purpose into this letter right here before going on. He says he's a prisoner for their sake, but don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged. The fact that they are arresting me, says Paul, is proof that you're doing it right. The fact that the spiritual forces of the world are disturbed by what's going on, disturbed enough to oppress me, is glorious. It means the church of God is being built according to plan. And the enemies of God hate it. That's good. That's fine. That's perfect. The fact that Paul was willing to suffer to tell the gospel gives it a credibility it could never have had otherwise. The plan to get Jesus killed exploded in the devil's face and the plan to crush the church of God was going to backfire as well. This is a lesson we can take away from Paul's words right here. Be encouraged when your faith faces opposition. If no one objects to what you're saying, you probably don't have a lot to say. Spiritual forces of the enemy acted against the church then, and they act against it now. And when our series reaches Ephesians chapter 6, we'll find Paul revisit this truth. But there is something valuable to take away from this verse right here. Be encouraged when your faith faces opposition. Standing in the face of that opposition brings glory to God. Now the rest of this chapter is Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus and all God's holy people. He begins with this line in verse 14. I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This is a play on the Greek words father and family, pater and patria. It doesn't translate perfectly into an English pun, but the message is clear. God is the father of all the head of all families, the one who we are all connected to, the only God worthy and with the right to be the God of the church of all nations. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He asked for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us through our inner being. What should we take this to mean? At first, it's hard to say, but we can know what Paul means by what he follows on to say. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. So this strengthening of the inner being is what roots and establishes us in love. It builds up love. It equips us to handle it. This is the love for one another. And what does being rooted and established in love accomplish? that you may have power together with all of God's holy people, of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It may not be how we commonly think of it, but Paul is talking about love not as something that is turned off or on, 
but as something that needs to be stretched and flexed and grown. Like a muscle, it needs to be exercised to perform better. You must lift the little weights before you can lift the big weights. And there is a kind of weight to emotion. They can be overwhelming. When we lose a loved one, particularly someone very close, that weight is so fierce, it becomes painful and physically distressing. And one of the only things that can help in such a time is to have someone you can lean on. Someone who will be strong for you. We can, in some strange connection between our inner being and another's, share emotional weight that we cannot handle on our own. But love is a little different. Love exists between two people and cannot exist alone. You can be happy alone, you can be angry alone, but you cannot be loved alone. Not really. You can like who you are, and these days we talk about how important it is to love yourself. But we're not talking about self-esteem here. We are talking about something shared and built and tested and strengthened, built higher, wider, deeper, stronger. Can it be that the couples who have been married for 20 years, who say that they love each other now more than the day they were married, can it be that they really mean it? Not because they were holding back love when they were younger, but because they are now rooted in love and established in love. They are strong enough in their inner being to love more, to understand more of what love is, to understand more of one another's love. Newlyweds may love one another completely, but they can't understand what it is to have loved for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years. You can't describe what decades of togetherness does. It's outside of what our language can handle and convey, and we don't have the strength in our inner being to cope with it. And Paul prays that we will be strengthened to love, that we will be rooted and established in love so that we can grasp the love of Christ. That's verse 18. To grasp the love of Christ. We talk about the love of God, but do we really grasp it? The Bible tells us that God is love. What does that mean exactly? Well, the Bible describes God in a lot of ways. Love just being one of them. We're told God is a warrior, but he isn't always a warrior because there isn't always a war. We're told that God is the one who punishes the wicked, but there will not always be wickedness to punish. But our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has always existed together in eternity. And so God has always been loving and has always been love. And there will come a day where there will be no war and no wickedness. And they are both gone forever, but the constant through it all is God's love. And that is the love that he has for you. A love that he has had for you before time began, before you were born. A love that he has been waiting for you to discover and discover more of. And for the Holy Spirit to begin strengthening your inner being so that you can understand it more. So while we build up our love for one another, we discover more of the love that God has for us, has always had for us. And Paul prays, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is the kind of God we are talking about, the one that we bring to the nations. One whose greatness overflows out of our ability to describe him, whose love fills us to the measure and every year 
We learn a little bit more about love by displaying it to one another. We discover a little more of the love that God has for us. So be encouraged when you face opposition. It's a love worth suffering for. Be rooted and established in love for one another. It is a love worth growing for. And expect that as you grow, you will be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. That is Paul's prayer for the church. May it be ours today also. He finishes with these words. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, you are the one over every family on earth. We pray that out of your glorious riches, you might strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Please establish us in love. Make us more able to understand the love that you have poured out for us in Jesus. We understand that your love is too big for us to fully ever know. But as you build us up, please fill us up so that we can know it more and more. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.